rocking. Really no time to dilly-dally tonight. It's another huge edition of Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira not with us. And I, I got to say, we've been doing the show, what, four years or so? I think this might have been your busiest and craziest week you've ever had as far as traveling to sporting events goes. Tell us about where you are and what you've been up to. I'm in Phoenix. I'm in, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> You're getting lost <laughs> on where you are. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, and uh, I was uh, for the NBA Finals. But I've had, I've had some big weeks with football and everything, but I would say this is exciting, that you, the fact that you get uh, three NBA Finals games. I caught a WNBA game in Phoenix, and I went to a baseball game in Milwaukee. So I did get – I saw like almost every single day I was at a sporting event, but when three of them were the NBA Finals at two cities that are so passionate for their basketball in Milwaukee and Phoenix, it was a special, special week. We're going to do a quick interview with someone who is a super fan much like yourself. And if you're familiar with the Suns or been watching them, you've probably seen Mr. Orange. Tell us about him. The number one super fan for the Suns, and he's on TV all the time. And I saw him at the game in Phoenix. I couldn't even talk to him after the first game because there's so many people who get their picture with him. And so we're just going to on talk about being what a super fan is and his interaction. So I think it's great just for a few minutes to, to sort of get the feel of the, the Suns fans in this, you know, now that they're up 2 1 in the NBA Finals. So let's go back to game one. And this is one of the reasons I thought this week was, was pretty cool for you is because you'd never been to some of these arenas before. One of those was going out to Phoenix. I've never been to Phoenix. I've been to Phoenix for a baseball game, but not to the arena. And the arena's new. It's, it's an older arena, but they renovated it during COVID. And so it's all, so people were, fans were coming to the game like, I haven't been, it's all different. And they would, the, the arena is simply fantastic. When you walk into an arena, I hate like when I walk into Barclays Center or some of these other arenas, even Madison Square Garden. Like it's so, it does, it, you need to feel like you're in something special when you walk into it. When you walk into the Phoenix Suns Arena, it is just, there's escalators everywhere. There's terraces that come down. There's a four-story glass uh, uh, entrance way. And there's a gigantic bar in the middle. When I see bar, it's, it must be the biggest bar in the world, right in the center. And it just adds so much character to it. I just love going to the arena. That arena was, I was just blown away. I was at two games, actually three with the WNBA game. Uh, plenty of food. There's so much food that you could have and, uh, and certainly with, with the merchandise stores everywhere. Uh, very pretty arena. And I love arenas that are in a bowl they're not with the back like this, like Staples and with the hockey where they're trying to be a hockey arena. So it's more like a square. This is like a round bowl underneath and with a low ceiling. So it makes the fans louder. So I sat in the upper deck for one of the games on the first row, dead center. And then I sat in a lower level for the second game. And the upper deck seat was great. But it, like in Staples, if you sat in the upper deck, you're a million miles away. This, you didn't seem, you felt like you're like right on the court. So I really just love that in terms of the arena. But the arena was great and the lighting was amazing. I mean, I'm taking pictures of my kids camera go on my iron sports on instagram on twitter and facebook uh, for iron sports and you'll see these great pictures and i don't know if i'm such a great photographer but the lighting was i've gone some arenas where i'm seeing the 12th and 13th row and i don't get lighting like that uh but i was real impressed and, and i love the atmosphere around the arena uh there's there's a lot of bars there's a lot of restaurants i like walking out of a stadium and just there are friends that i met for the second game and after the game we just went to a bar and, and hung out for two hours to, to, to have dinner and there might be like 20 30 restaurants right around there that adds more to the intensity and the enthusiasm and all the fans are outside so anything it was like 120 degrees in phoenix but uh still it was great and just staying downtown and seeing all the atmosphere i, I really enjoyed that so tell us a little bit about the atmosphere inside the stadium because you like to get there early and and get comfortable yeah, I mean, I would say that 
the one thing I'm going to about the Suns, unlike uh, the Sixer fans were like that, certainly not like Brooklyn and nothing like when I go to L.A. games or whatever. 15 minutes before the game, it's packed. I mean, everybody was there. When they start the national anthem, people, before the, like the, the warm-ups, they're screaming. I mean, it was the, the passion of these fans. They're in their seats. It's like one of those games where you go to, in the middle of the game, you don't have people like standing up, like getting a drink, getting whatever. They, they're always – it's almost like a hockey-type crowd in terms of just their passion, their enthusiasm. I sat around people. So many like mothers brought their sons that are like college age or high school age that were like, oh, I, I've been a fan. This is our first time that we could see a playoff game or finals game. This is so exciting. Uh, I just think that the energy and the screaming and the yelling and the, just the passion, I think, makes it so great. So let's talk about um, how everything went because we were ready for – I think a lot of people thought that this, was go- this series was going the distance. Once we got out of the gate in Phoenix, I was starting to think otherwise. Let's talk about how game one went down. Well, I mean, this is the first game in uh, Milwaukee. Was actually Milwaukee played Phoenix. Milwaukee used to be in the Western Conference in 1978. They played in the playoffs. Uh, Mike Budenholzer, the coach of the Bucks, grew up in Arizona. It was another interesting thing. But it was the first NBA Finals game since 1993, Bulls Game Six, uh, when the Bulls clinched and won the title against Barkley. They haven't made the playoffs in 10 years. And two years ago, they were 19 and 63 with the worst record in the league. Uh, so I think from that aspect, it was you know that was one where the excitement was. And then I think it was great when I heard that Giannis was going to play. I'm like, that's what we needed. Like I, I didn't want to see this game. We've had so much of these playoffs with the stars not playing injured, those things. It was great that Giannis was in the game. He was going to play. He didn't know how well he was going to play, but the fact that he was announced that you know, after missing a couple games against Atlanta, that he was going to be in the game, and I was excited with that. And uh, the first half, the only player to have played in the NBA Finals, it really wasn't true in the NBA Finals, was Jay Crowder who played for the Heat. Now, none of these players have ever played in the NBA Finals before, and we're so used to the Warriors and the Cavaliers. You know, the Cavaliers have been like, everybody's been in four or five finals. The fact that there was nobody but Crowder has only been in the finals. Um, the Andre agent started on Giannis to start, and uh, I thought was what what was interesting in that first half was that Brooke Lopez from Milwaukee starts. I was waiting for for uh, Milwaukee to do to Phoenix what they did to Miami. Use the size dunking, points in the paint, dominating like that. And uh, that's what they sort of started out the game with. Uh, Giannis, and I think, like how they used Giannis. They took him out after six minutes. They didn't like have him play. He usually plays almost the whole first quarter, then takes a break. They gave him a blow after six minutes, came out of the game, and I think that was smart in order to see it. He looked, he looked good in that first half. Now, I think the second half he got tired, but in the first half he looked, uh, he looked very good. But the one thing that you start seeing in this game was that at the end of the first quarter, uh, the lead was two, and uh, Cameron Payne uh, missed a shot, but uh, Craig tipped it in for Phoenix. It seems like the last shot of every quarter in the first two games Phoenix made. It was like, sort of like a puncher winning the end of the round, like a boxer, like stealing around. It seemed like they just always got those points. So it was 30-26 at the end of the first quarter. Really good. I mean, people were texting me, this game is great. Like, I love the intensity. I like what was going on. And it was sort of like they were up by four after that, then after second by four. They, let, they won the second quarter by four, and they won by third by eight. So it was a small lead after that first quarter. Then it made it an eight-point lead, and then they further distance in the third and cruised in the fourth. I mean, similar, all three games sort of were like that. Phoenix took the lead, held on, maybe a little run by Milwaukee the games one and two, and then games three, it was totally reversed. That's exactly what happened. Um, one thing was in the second quarter started, and Paul started taking over, taking these mid-range shots, uh, threes, uh, and, and handling it. And I think that, you know, the one thing we saw from the first two games is that pick and roll, uh, where Lopez, it was almost like Chris Paul and Devin Booker said, 
okay, Aiton, come over and set a pick. He sets a pick. Brooke Lopez is guarding Aiton. They switch. Milwaukee switched their picking picks every single play, whereas Phoenix doesn't. So it's suddenly now it's, it's Paul Lopez is guarding Paul. And instead of trying to switch back and doing something and saying they just spread it out and let Paul go and, and, and Booker go on Lopez to the point where they had, even though Lopez was scoring, he's their center, that, that they had to take him out of the game because they kept running the pick and roll because they would refuse to not switch. And that was a big, it was a big problem. And, and the one thing is, it seems like every game, Milwaukee does not make in-game adjustments. It's like they, they just, you're like waiting for them to make an adjustment. They just seem to like figure out how to handle it. It took them actually to the third game where they finally figure out how to, how to go. But that's where just the domination in terms of, I mean, the first half, Booker had 16 points, Paul 11, 8 and 10, and Bridges came out and had nine points, who plays really well from Villanova and, and plays fantastic for them. Uh, but we saw what Drew Holiday, uh, two for eight, four points, just another bad game where he's just shooting the ball, comes down. I mean, when Holiday comes down, he just somehow shoots the ball, doesn't work in offense, doesn't throw to Giannis, and that's bad. And But the key thing happened that first half. Dario Stark, who's the big man for Phoenix, he tore his ACL. We went out the game. We didn't know he had a torn ACL at the time. But that came back later, and that might be one of the key injuries to the series because you see Aiton gets in foul trouble. Aiton's not able to play, and they don't really have – they have a great – first seven for the Suns, but they really had a great first eight. But when you go to seven, they really don't have another big man that can come in and help. And that it didn't play out those first two games, but in the third game, you saw it. Um, and then in the second half, really what happened is Aiton just started dominating. Uh, it was, and Chris Paul had one of the best quarters, 16 points. He was six for seven, three for three on three pointers, uh, just in a dominating third quarter. Giannis in the game three got 20. So it's like it rarely, I mean, that's the record was I think Kobe had 19, LeBron had the 19, and Giannis had 20 in the last quarter. But Paul scoring 16 points was amazing. And, uh, but the Bucks were just playing terrible. They were two for six on the line. Suns were 15 for 15. And it was 92-76 at the end of three. And then the fourth quarter, no Lopez, no Portis, just a young, small lineup in Conahay, Forbes. They cut the lead to 12. Um, then it cut to seven, but then uh, Paul threw it to Booker for a three, and Middleton had a terrible turnover. Paul scored, and the uh, game was over. But it was like one of those things where, and then by the end of the game, you had reserves in. You know, it wasn't like one of, none of these games had like the final minute of the game was close where they were able to pull away, and, and they ended up winning by 10. But after that game, you're like, how in the world is Milwaukee, they have this big size of Andrews Lopez, and it helps them. He shoots threes, but they can't keep him in because Booker and uh, – uh, Booker and, and Paul were able to completely dominate. Uh, I mean, Middleton had a good game at 29 points. Uh, Giannis had played 35 minutes, 20.17 rebounds. But uh, when Lopez and Holiday, they were combined with a plus-minus rating, minus 17. And uh, they, they, it was really one of those things where they shot 9 for 16 for the line. They didn't shoot well for the line. But Paul played 37 minutes, had 32 points, 9 assists, 8 and 22 points, 19 rebounds. Uh, even a terrible game from Crowder, 0 for 8. But they were still able to, uh, to dominate and really win, it, win a game in terms of what they have to do. And uh, so that really, it was like one of those things, you know, the atmosphere, the enthusiasm, but then you're putting pressure on because for game two, like what was going to happen, could, could the Bucks take a game in Phoenix and where they will, and they've, they've fallen down behind two games against the Nets, but where they, where they, you know, be able to take at least make it one, one. It's interesting you say that because Milwaukee's gone down in just about every series. I mean, they've been down Oh two. It seems like every time they were down, um, you know, three games to one uh, at one point. So They've shown resilience, and we'll see what happens going forward. We got to talk about game two first. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Phoenix Superfan, Mr. Orange, joins us in a few minutes. Game two, you were there as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's what, again, I saw the Bucks. The one thing about the Bucks, I saw them play terrible. I mean, against the Nets, they were losing by 50. You know, one game around another 30 points. I mean, they, when the Bucks look bad, they look horrendous. And then they look good. They look like they do in game three. And again, in the uh, in game two, it was, it was similar to the game one in terms of, uh, but the refs really let the teams play. They're, they're, if you notice, the first half, the first, I think, foul shot was with two minutes to go in the first half. Uh, the Bucks led uh, 29-26 uh, after one. And suddenly the second quarter, this was the final five minutes of the second quarter, everything happened. It was 41-41, and then at the five-minute mark, and then suddenly they were outscored by 14 points. Uh, Middleton just started missing shots. Giannis was having air balls. Middleton turning the ball over. Holiday playing terrible. And then for the Suns, you had Booker and Crowder and Paul and Bridges all draining shots. Bridges played fantastic. I mean, for someone who is like maybe the fourth option of the team, that's what teams need. Someone who will come in and play great defense. Remember Bridges from Villanova and Desenzio, for who plays for Bucks, who's injured, they, they, they won two national titles. I mean, he knows how to play and, and play smart, and they scored what he had to, and so athletic. And I think that's one thing, but it was like, uh, that, and then you saw at the end of that first half when they passed the ball like 10 times, there was like 10 passes in the clock. And it was the point where like the Bucks were just standing there. It was like almost Harlem Globetrotter style, 10 passes. And uh, the Bucks were just standing there and Aiton had a dunk at the end, end, end half. Middleton for the first half was two for 10. Holiday, three, four, 14. They were both were 0 for 5 from 3. And you're like waiting for like Holiday and Middleton. This is the same problem they had against the Nets. And then people are questioning. They're like, wait a second. They ended up beating the Atlanta Hawks when Giannis got hurt. Maybe they're better without Giannis, which is, of course, ridiculous to say. But the point is that Middleton and Holiday didn't play well. And, uh, and, and then suddenly in the third quarter, then Booker just took over. He had 12 points for the quarter. The lead got to be 16. Giannis was doing everything. Dunks. He was actually making his three throws. He scored, if it wasn't for Giannis, the lead would have been 30, 40 points. He had 20 points in the quarter. It's, of course, the first 20-point period in the finals since MJ in 1993. I mean, it was amazing that LeBron never scored 20 points in a finals quarter. Uh, and then uh, it, was, it was it's still 88-78 at the end of three. And then in the fourth, the Bucks actually cut it to six with four minutes to go. But then Paul hit a huge three, and then Middleton was blocked on a layup, and Bridges made a shot, and sort of stayed that way the rest of the way. Uh, and and uh, it was for the point for the game. I mean, Giannis had a game for the ages, 15 for 22. He had 42 points, 12 boards, four assists, three blocks. But Middleton, 11 points on five for 16 shooting. Holiday, seven for 21 for 17 points. Uh, they really never played Portis. They didn't use Portis with the size. And again, the Bucks. everyone's like on Budaholzer, the coach. Like, what are you doing? You're not using Portis. You're not dominating the middle. This is crazy. Uh, the Suns all used their starters. Aiton even had a bad game, 10 points, 12 rebounds. So Paul had 23 points. Booker had 31 points, 7 for 12 from threes uh, for an NBA Finals record for number threes in the, uh, in the finals. And Cam Johnson came in and had played a good 18 minutes. But it was like one of those games – where you're just like you're waiting for the Bucks to make that. Once the Suns got that lead, the Bucks could never. They made their little run to cut it to like seven, but they couldn't then uh, even just like take that lead in the fourth quarter. Let's go to Phoenix Suns super fan, Mr. Orange. Zyron Sports on 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach, and we're pleased to have Patrick Rotillo on. Uh, he is the most famous Phoenix Suns fan. He, you see him on TV. It's Mr. Orange. He's the one dressed all in orange, and every time you watch the games on TV, he's there. 
there. And I saw him here at the Milwaukee. We're broadcasting for Milwaukee. I saw him here and I said, I got to get him on the show because this is, you know, I've got to have to talk to the number one Phoenix Suns fan. So thanks a lot, Patrick, for coming on the show. And, and how are the fans treating you here in Milwaukee? Are being really nice to you? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And yeah, actually, they're extremely uh, kind, uh, very hospitable here. Um, as always, you're going to have uh, individuals that are, you know, more aggressive or um, especially after, you know, they, they drink and have a few in their system. Uh, that'll be a little more uh, verbally aggressive. But um, overall, uh, people are really, you know, welcoming, making sure we're enjoying the city, uh, the time that we're here and, and really respect, you know, the, the fan support and making the trip out here for the finals. And um, but, yeah, the, the energy was amazing yesterday, you know, from outside the arena coming in and uh yeah it's been it's been really great uh, being able to interact with other fans even though you know they're for the opposing team so you talk a little about your outfit and what and first of all the idea to just dress all in orange and get it all set up in terms of and becoming how you literally became the number one sun super fan yeah absolutely so you know we in phoenix Basketball and the Suns in particular have been, it was the first uh, professional franchise in Arizona, so it, it's been extremely exciting uh, for Phoenix. But, you know, about, it was 11 years ago now that I, I started the, the brand Mr. Orange. And what came of that was, you know, a lot of people in the arena uh, were becoming um, very tenured season ticket holders that have been around since inception. Um, and so they were not as vocal, not as loud, very supportive, but just not in the environment that, you know, is like a college basketball or what you see from the Phoenix Suns, you know, arena now, uh, you know, that type of energy. And so that, that was what I was trying to do and bring, you know, to our fan base in the arena because the players feed off of that. So after so many people kept looking at me and being like, hey, can you be quiet, sit down, you know, stop being so loud, stop being so noisy, um, you know, dressed normal, if you will. Uh, you know, I started to spray my hair orange. Uh, that was the last time we had made the playoffs that offseason. So went to San Antonio, uh, did my hair orange. We wound up sweeping that series and then, you know, put pace, face paint on and, and just went and bought garden gloves and spray painted those orange as we played the Lakers. I went to all those games, both in Phoenix and in L.A., and then uh, that offseason, you know, put the brand together, and it's really taken off since then. Uh, so much I do in the community, so speaking events, engagements, uh, the, the Phoenix Children's Hospital, places like that to be able to just give back as Mr. Orange and a super fan, um, but, and then obviously attending the games and, and supporting, which has, you know, over the past decade looked as bad as it ever has for our franchise, where we've had the some of the worst seasons ever um, consecutively, but, you know, still going out all out in orange and, and supporting the team. So to your question about how it's evolved in terms of the outfits, I, I started with, as I said, garden gloves, you know, buying yellow garden gloves and spray paint, spray painting them orange, uh, just getting an orange T-shirt with the screen print saying Mr. Orange, O-R-N-G as it's spelled. Um, and then, you know, progressively have gone from there. So created a logo um, and then, you know, had Nike, uh, which was the alpha you saw yesterday, the, the Mr. Orange with the Nike T-shirt, Nike shorts. Um, I have Mr. Orange Phoenix Suns uniforms uh, of old. I have a tuxedo that I'll be wearing this week on Wednesday for game four. Uh, also have the logo on that. So, yeah, just a number of different outfits that have, you know, progressed throughout the, the years as, you know, as I said, now I'm in season 11 as Mr. Orange. But, um, you know, it's definitely exciting and fun um, to be able to cheer the team on. Um, and this year, you know, compared to what it has been, you know, not just making the 
playoffs, but you know, being now in the NBA Finals and uh, in a very tough series that we are lucky to be, you know, on the the top of the two-one uh, uh, side of the column there for for the playoffs. How many pictures? I, I mean, I was wanted to talk to you in Phoenix, and you were just surrounded by people. You must pose for like a thousand pictures a game. Everybody was coming up with you at the game, wanting a picture. It was as popular as some of the players, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely at home in Phoenix. So I had quite a few here uh, as well in Milwaukee, even uh, obviously Suns fans, but then many of the Milwaukee fans asked, you know, just uh, it's great. They they appreciate, you know, how I look and the, the work I put into it. But yeah, you're you're right. Uh, at home, it's it's continual from when I get out of the car till I get back to the car um, on individuals wanting to take pictures. And, you know, it's awesome. That's what it's all about. And if I'm able to interact with fans, I've had some come up, you know, many that are like, hey, here at you know the playoffs with my you know dad or brother or mom and we took a picture of you 10 years ago and we want to take another one and you know kind of do a side by side and so it's really cool to have you know that, that again the fan base you know responding as well as they are and then being able to come enjoy these playoff games and then you know get a picture that they can compare to you know what it was 10 11 years ago and you're a basketball coach. I mean, you just, just you're in a real life. You're a high school basketball coach, which is crazy. Like it's great that you're you're a basketball coach and you're a super fan. And it's a great. It's so cool that, that you sort of put that together in your love love of basketball. And, and and you mentioned though, I saw saw an article where they you so the players recognize you and you talk to players and they even the opposing players can see you and like and, and converse with you because you're you have a seat so close to the court. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the Suns, you know, in particular, of course, um, currently like Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, they, that was the first thing that kind of surprised me in terms of how much they would actually care and engage. So I knew it obviously would affect, you know, how athletes play, like the energy and support from their team. But, you know, when I started, Steve Nash was the first, you know, three months in to have his publicist reach out and set up a meeting, you know, with him and I, and he did a whole interview with me and just told me how much he appreciated it. And then our, our relationship took off, you know, from there. And just, uh, like I said, currently with Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, just having that, um, they truly care. They're truly invested in us as fans and appreciate what we do. Um, opposition, you know, um, pre-COVID, being able to, you know, hang around after, outside. Um, you know, right now they pretty much rush everyone out of the out of the gym. But uh, back then we'd be able to hang around and, you know, opposing players, Kevin Durant, you know, players like that would come and, you know, recognize me and then, uh, you know, take pictures with me as well as I would take pictures with them. And so it, it's just really neat to, to see that appreciation from the athletes themselves um, as opposed to just the organizations. And uh, that's been, been an amazing part because, um, you know, you, you really get to feel the appreciation from them for what we do as fans. And that's, that's a story I always love to share with the other fans because it, it truly makes a difference. And when they can see that and that interaction, like I had with Devin Booker at the end of uh, game six of the Western Conference Finals when we won in L.A., like those moments is, is what it's all about for us as fans. And it's interesting, the, the team, I mean, people kept saying nationally, oh, Booker's got to leave, he can't stay, why is Aiton in Phoenix, and it's crazy that Chris Paul goes there. But you can see, when I went to Phoenix, the love the fans have from them, and it's like, no, Devin Booker doesn't have to go to Brooklyn. He would not get this type of support in Brooklyn. He would not, in L.A. as a super team, you saw the Clippers in Phoenix were, were you know, classic uh, opposites in terms of the Clipper fans don't care about their team, and the Suns yep. fans love their team. And I just think that, uh, it just I don't see Devin Booker leaving Phoenix. I don't. I think Chris Paul is going to retire a son. I think Aiton loves playing there. 
Yeah, that's the piece of, you know, what they call the, us and Milwaukee small market um, teams versus big market teams, as you just alluded to with, you know, Brooklyn's and, and, and California, L.A. teams. Uh, but Clippers are very different than the Lakers. And so that's the piece is Devin Booker. Obviously, he won the NBA Community Assist Award for the whole year, uh, for the whole season. And compared to he also won it for one of the months. And so you hit it right on the head about how there's much more to than just basketball to it. Yes, obviously, that's a major part. But he's also very invested in the community, and he's very invested in uh, being the guy and working alongside the other guys, like the big three of DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul. And so same with Chris Paul. Everyone, you know, tried to stir up, you know, the media, in my opinion, during this um, playoff run of, oh, Chris Paul is not going to resign. Okay, if he chooses not to, yeah, well, why would he not restructure a deal for, say, three years with the Phoenix Suns um, to last longer? So it's not just, oh, he's 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 going to opt out and not take the, the player option. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he's not happy here and wants to leave. Um, and so that's a piece of, I think, now that both Milwaukee and Phoenix are in the finals, the NBA and the, the media are starting to see it's not just about the big market teams, and that's not at all what all players are just searching for uh, when it comes to that next deal. And so, yes, people all the time, national media that are now like, oh, Devin Booker's never going anywhere. You, there were the same people two, three years ago, like Devin Booker needs to get the heck out of there. He needs to leave Phoenix. There's nothing that's ever going to work for him there. He's not happy. And so, again, as as a fan that's you know connected to them uh, and supportive of them, you know that that's not true. And it doesn't mean that you know, an athlete may never leave here, but that, that loyalty piece has been, it's very rare, you know, Kobe and Tim Duncan and, you know, at this point, Damian Lillard, like there's very few that start and stay and, and that's becoming less and less common now, but um, it's, it's super exciting. And to be able to land a Chris Paul, you know, in Phoenix, you know, as we have, and to be as successful as we have just in the first year, says a lot to, you know, the overall structure that uh, Monty Williams, Robert Sarver has put in place, you know, with James Jones kind of leading that charge and, um, you know, building from learnings in the past. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. What's the best way, if you want to follow you, follow your exploits uh, in terms of Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, what are, what's your handles and how people should you know, be able to follow you? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's uh, Mr. Orange, so M-R-O-R-N-G, on Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. For Twitter, it's PHX Mr. Orange. So Twitter is the only one that's different because it was already taken uh, way back then. So uh, PHX M-R-O-R-N-G on Twitter. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Good luck on Wednesday. I'll be there. I can't wait for this. It'll be a great atmosphere. And I appreciate you for coming on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So, Ira, we're, we're putting the timetable together here of what you did the past week. You're still in Phoenix, so what else are you going to do? Take in another sport, or the same sport, just in a different league. I, I would, There was a WNBA game on Friday night. I knew I was flying to Phoenix, uh, Milwaukee, on Saturday. So I said, it's right there. I'm staying in a hotel right there. Let's, let's check it out. And I thought the game started at 7, but it was at 6, so I just made it on time. But I didn't realize when I got there, Seattle and Phoenix, half the U.S. Olympic team was on uh, there. Seattle has Brianna Stewart. Sue Bird and Joel Lloyd. Phoenix has Brittany Grimer, Skylar Diggins, and Diana Taurasi. So of the 12 Olympians, six were there. There's 12 WNBA teams. Six of them were on the court. Uh, and I got to see Brianna Stewart play live. This is only my second WNBA game to even see. Um, one thing about Brianna Stewart, she's a four-time NCAA champion, three-time NCAA player of the year, two-time WNBA champion, and two-times final MVP and one MVP. She's like 26 years old. <laughs> so she could clearly go down as one of the greatest players of all time. She's tall. She shoots. 
uh, uh, she's like Kevin Durant out there in terms of how well she plays. Uh, and Brittany Grimer is just amazing. NCAA champion, WNBA champion, player of the year. Uh, and it was just exciting to see the fans. I went there and I thought, no, who's going to be at this game? Total, the lower bowl was almost completely filled. It reminds me of when I went to Miami Heat. You should never put people, uh, before LeBron got here, they didn't use, they didn't use their upper bowl, upper bowl. So it was like a lower bowl of the game. But um, I could not believe how many fans were there. And they were so loud. And they were so into the game. And the referees, they were yelling at the rest of the entire game. So it was, it, was, it was good. I mean, I was like, it was weird to get. And also, I got to sit like nine rows dead center, which would have been like a million dollars for the finals. So it was sort of <laughs> cool to sit there. And Chris Paul's parents were sitting around there. You know, some parents of some of the players, besides Chris Paul, I think a number of the other parents uh, and, and friends or whatever of the players were at the WNBA game. And it's very popular in Phoenix. I mean, I, I guess they had like eight or 9,000. You just count the little, maybe even more uh, for the game. But it was, it was fun to be there for that. So, Ira, uh, game three, you're heading, uh, you're heading back across the country. This was not your first time in Milwaukee. However, first time for an NBA Finals game, obviously. Yeah, I've never been. Well, I'm actually, this is another new stadium. I've never, I was never at the, they used to play at the Bradley Center, never there. And they just opened the Pfizer, uh, Pfizer Forum in downtown Milwaukee. First of all, Milwaukee, just like Phoenix, but even better, I cannot believe how many bars and restaurants and everything is here. I mean, it is, it is an amazing downtown. There must be, it's like New Orleans. There's like a hundred bars and restaurants all around the arena. They built the arena and then around it, they put these modern, this thing called the Mecca, which is one of the biggest sports bars I've ever seen. And there's other bars. And then there's a street called Third Street, and there's more sports bars and restaurants and clubs and everything on those streets. So it is, and they're packed full of people. Like on Saturday night, you couldn't even move down the street. It's so exciting in terms of different events. And they have, there's, there's water, there's, there's the lakes have the rivers. So there's a lot of uh, bars on the rivers where people put their boats up and come up to. Um, just to, I just, I didn't think there was that many people here in Milwaukee, let alone <laughs> to have all that. And then when you see the Deer District on TV, that's what it is. I mean, that, but those fans that go to all the bars too. So it's not just, in the Deer District, it's the entire way downtown. Um, as someone, I mean, I don't think Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, Chicago—they have nothing like this. Certainly, Los Angeles. I couldn't believe you could have one stretch where you have this many bars, this many restaurants, this many people. I mean, that's why it reminds me of like New Orleans, where you would see all like just stretches of—it's almost like it's crazy, like a big college town. But uh, the stadium is fantastic. As I said, it's the second newest arena. It's Golden State just put one, and it is. There is glass on the entire, you can see when you're in the stadium of concourses, you look out all over Milwaukee. There's, it's not, and it's so broad and there's no lines for bathrooms, no lines for food. They have more food options, more everything. They have figured out the whole idea of ordering from your phone and then you put it and pick it up. It's faster than anything. Like everything in the arena is tremendous. Uh, merchandise stores, food, bathrooms, I, I, it, just to walk around to get your seats. The, the, the seats are, are perfect. Everything about it. And it's like the Phoenix Arena, low roof, in a bowl, uh, that type of thing with great scoreboards. Uh, lighting is just through the roof in terms of just easily able to see the action. Again, I sat the game yesterday. I had to sit in the upper deck. It's hard to get these lower deck seats because lower bowl seats, they're expensive. But I sat in like the third row and I, I felt like it was like a theater because you sort of like you go, you felt like if you fell, you'd be on the court. So it's just a great view. I, I love the view for, to watch the game. But uh, just blown away by this arena, by the town and the fans and excitement. Just like people are saying, compare the two. I think they're equal. I think the fans in Phoenix are passionate. I think the Milwaukee fans are passionate. The only difference would be that there's that gear district where I don't, in Phoenix, you didn't have that many people outside, but inside 
the stadium, both very, very loud. Everyone dressed in colors. I mean, this isn't like Brooklyn where they're like, okay, we're going to go to my club next. I'm going to go to the party. I have to dress like ready for that. Like everyone is dressed in green. Everyone is dressed in green and white. Everyone dressed in Phoenix and orange and whatever blue, whatever other colors they have. So it was like, and they don't need, they don't need a shirt on their, on their uh, chair to have them dressed the right way. They're coming dressed with all the merchandise items. Well, it's funny, Ira, you say that, you know, we spend a lot of time in New York, obviously Florida, uh, Los Angeles and California. That's where you get those. Yeah. The fans that are worried about what they're doing after the game, when you're in a Milwaukee, a Phoenix, uh, you know, cities like Nashville and Pittsburgh, they come out in droves. The city stops. Everyone's wearing a jersey, and it makes it really fun. So I'm glad you got to experience both of these, you know, and really get wrapped up in it. So this game obviously was pretty much make or break for the Bucks, and they responded the way they should as a team that uh, you know the team that has every plan to to, to still win the uh, finals. Well, I think that's why when it coming in the game, I know the Bucks were a five point favorite. And I said, I go, only someone who had watched that game. Now, remember, game three to me was the key game against the Nets because they got blown out in Brooklyn. They looked terrible. Even game three, they didn't play well. Then they, they're, they, uh, Brooklyn has a five-point lead with two minutes to go. And, of course, they decide, let's not have Kevin Durant shoot the ball. That's probably a stupid move. And they have uh, Brown shoot it and Joe Harris shoot the shots. And they end up winning that game 2-1. And then Kyrie gets hurt. And then it's 2-2, and then it's 3-2, and then whatever. They lose the series. The Nets would have won that. But I've seen, even against Atlanta, I, I, they, when the game Giannis got hurt, they look, the Bucks tend, you look at the Bucks sometimes, and Holiday's missing his shots, and Middleton is missing his shots, and Giannis isn't aggressive, and you're like, they're not going to beat anybody. They're terrible. They're awful. But then when they get it going, they get, and again, it's like, it's almost like, wow, is this the same team that played in games one and two? And I... I, this game was interesting because the Suns, I think, for the first time, remember, they rolled through Denver 4-0, uh, beat the Clippers. They were down 2-1 the Lakers but came back. But I think this is the first game they were actually punched, and they didn't punch back. Like they, like, so I think they gave not, it, was, it was not just the Bucks won this game, but how they won. They got the Suns to quit. They got the Suns. They, they clearly won the game. It wasn't some fluke at the end. And they clearly showed the method that they're going to use against the Suns. And maybe we talked about Dante Desenzio in terms of hurting when he's out. When, you know, here's the fifth and sixth option on a team. Milwaukee loses him. Oh, it's not that big a deal. They're, they're deep. They have other players. But Sark, oh, the Suns are so deep. But maybe losing Sark, not being able to put that big man in to help Aiton out, maybe that's the difference. And, and they really look like now you could actually see the pathway for Milwaukee to come back and win it. And I think clearly coming back from 2-0 to the Nets over Kevin Durant gave them, they weren't panicking, they weren't nervous about it. They, they, they've done it before. They just did it a few weeks ago. They can do it again. So, Aaron, what, what happened next? Like you said, yeah, you, they, they're starting to show the resiliency that they've become famous for uh, throughout this playoff run. Right. I mean, I, I think one thing was that the first play of the game, Holiday, who's been struggling for two games, comes down and he makes three. It was like the first shot of the game. And just <laughs> the atmosphere. And that's what I think these fans are different. When I saw in Philadelphia and Ben Simmons was struggling, it seemed like the fans, they, they turned on Simmons. They didn't want, the pressure got even greater on Simmons. In Milwaukee, Holiday could have been 0 for 30. The fans would have still encouraged him. The amount of encouragement for Holiday is like, we love you, we love you, you can do it. Da, da. Like, I think that's what he fed on that. Like, they, they, this team, Giannis with missing the foul shots, like, that he comes back here, they don't care. They're not making, he threw an arrow, you know, they don't care. Like, they want, they are supporting. 
supporting their fan, their team. They will. They don't care if Giannis is 0 for 30 from the foul line. They're going to still cheer for him, and I think that helps. And I think that's. I think that's why they play well at home. That's why they have this great almost one game at home. But Holiday came and drained that three. But the Suns were up. I mean, the thing that was different in this game, Chris Paul, I think, sensed what he needed to do. He scored. He, I think he had like seven or eight points in that first quarter. He realized that he had to take over. He was making mid-range shot after mid-range shot. Uh, Booker was off playing terrible as he did the entire game. And Aiton started making shots. And that's why they're up 28-25. But I think Paul sensed it, being the veteran, the 16-year veteran that he was, that this game, that he needed to step up and he can't wait for Bridges and can't let wait the game to come to him. He literally had to take the game over. But then you saw in the second uh, quarter, the Bucks went crazy. They went a 16-3 to run. Uh, Giannis was scoring, getting the rebounds. Holiday was draining three. And Portis was just now inserted in the game. And he's dominating the inside. And that's now getting Aiton into foul trouble. But Port- and, and, and all these offensive rebounds, like they would miss the shot. Instead of this missing shot, they get the rebound and they throw it for a three. It's just a domination. And I think that was what the key was in that first half. I mean, Booker was two for 11. And it's like the Suns look like the Bucks, like Middleton and Holiday coming down. Like Booker comes down, takes a bad shot. They run back. But he was two for 11. Um, the Suns were two for 14 from threes. And Giannis Court had 18 points, Middleton 15, and Portis had nine points. And then in the third period, Aiton got in foul trouble early. They take him out, but actually it helped them. They, they went small. I mean, they literally were have Cam Johnson was in the game, uh, and they had no really center at all. And that helped them because it sort of like made Milwaukee, you know, try to – and they, made, they had a good run. They started out the third making 10-11 shots. They went a 14-5 run. Uh, Cam Johnson had that junk, uh, that uh, that dunk on Tucker, which was amazing. Which I missed. I have all these great pictures, and it's the one dunk I missed. The whole, I was all mad about that. Um, with five minutes to go, they cut the lead to seventy-four to seventy. Remember, it was fifteen and a half time. Um, and then, but but then with that small lineup, the Bucks made a little bit of adjustments. Then they actually played more aggressively. Giannis started asking for the ball against Cam Johnson. You could just you could just see him like you know, hear the ball, hear the ball, give it to me. And he started scoring. And even when he missed, he would get the rebound and then they took Chris Paul I think the mistake the uh, Suns did they take Chris Paul out of the game at the end and in a period of like two minutes the Bucks go on a 16 to nothing run and then at the end of the third quarter Conahay hits the uh, Conahan hits the uh, three-pointer uh, and, and it's sort of and even Giannis he made at one point in the quarter he drained eight free throws in a row so then they're up 22 at the end of three didn't even put Booker back in at the game and uh, the league got up to 24 and Booker for the game was three for 14 10 points Paul had 19 points 18 only played 24 minutes 18 points and nine rebounds but and Crowder, Crowder had like six threes I mean it wasn't him I think the game would have even been worse but Giannis another just monster game 41 points 13 rebounds six assists Middleton had 18 points but only three in the second half but holiday shot great eight for 14 hit five threes 21 points but Portis, I mean, the one they did the interview at the game, he had only 18 minutes, but 11.8 rebounds. And it seemed like in the action, doing everything. I mean, the key was the rebounding. They had four, they out-rebounded them 47 to 36, Bucks did. 14 offensive. They had 54 points in the paint. So, again, this is what they did. If you remember what the Bucks did to the Heat, they did exactly the same thing. This was, the, this was like the four games against the Heat. They used their size. They, Giannis was dominating. They couldn't do anything. When Giannis would miss a shot or someone else would, they get the rebound and score again. Um, and that was like one of those things where the Suns just, like, that's why they didn't put Booker in the game. I mean, I have to say, Monty Williams, you saw him on the bench, seeing behind the Bucks bench, I mean, the Suns bench, higher. But his arm was around him for like two or three minutes, like talking to Booker. Monty Williams really works with his team while they're on the court, talking to the players. Um, I, I can't wait to see what kind of adjustments they come out for game four. It's Ira Sports True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So Ira, while we're talking basketball, we have to discuss this just for a moment. 
Team USA lost to Nigeria in uh, an exhibition game prepping for the Tokyo Olympics. This would be inexcusable if Hakeem Olajuwon was in his prime. Just for them to go out and lose. Granted, there's some talent on the Nigerian side. This is Team USA. You're not supposed to lose these games. I just thought this game, I want to talk about it for a second because I, I thought it was that Team USA had just reserves. Like I didn't realize that they started Durant, Bradley Beal, Jason Tatum, Damon Litter, and Bam Adebayo. How that team lost to anybody, I have no yeah. idea. They played Nigeria, and, and they have also Zach Levine, Draymond Green, and Kevin Love. Uh, they lost. Nigeria has three. Why? This is interesting for Heat fans and everything. The Heat have gave the, the three star Nigerian players were Gabe Vincent, Casey Apaka, and Preston Zachua. All play for the Heat. How in the world did this team? I mean, I think the video, I don't know if it was on TV. I never, I mean, they're probably going to burn this video so no one can see it. But how in the world that happened is just crazy. And Durant played. Like, I, it's just, it's, it would be like if it wasn't for the middle of the NBA finals, everything else happening. It would be one of the largest upsets of, of all time. That was just an exhibition game. But I think that was just, I think it, it both well the fact that the Heat development team, in terms of working with these three young players, you, you're hoping that Precious would develop and Casey Apocalypse develops, and maybe they can use Gabe Vincent again next year. Uh, that, that bodes well for the Heat and just an amazing loss uh, for, the, for the USA team. I mean, if the USA team doesn't win the gold medal, I mean, it'll be a complete and utter. I mean, how does this team, and people say, well, it's not, they have Durant, Beal, Tatum, Lillard, and about, how that team should lose anybody. They should be able to just, they could have the Nets and they should beat anybody. <laughs> you know, I mean, just having Durant and a couple of players, let alone the best players the NBA has to offer for the most part. Uh, let's change gears, go over to Wim- Wimbledon. You'd said before this started, it was Joker's tournament and you were right. Uh, it was, I mean, he was almost an even money favorite. Now he's won 20 in a row, uh, 20, 20 majors. And it's, Great. I mean, I always thought that Tiger was going to get to 18, a tie jack. So, but right now we have Federer at 20, Nadal at 20, and Djokovic at 20. They're all at 20. Uh, San Francisco is at 14. Just to show you where these guys have been playing each other, and they're all, and now Djokovic's at 20. And you think, you know, people are saying he's going to be the best of all time because he has a winning record against, he's 27 23 against Federer and 30-20 against Nadal. But, um, you know, there's still more to go. I mean, it's, I'm not ready to say joke. Right now they're tied. Like, if it ended right now, you'd probably say they're equal. You know, but uh, it was... It was like one of those things where, but Djokovic's been, he won Australia last year. He lost the French to Nadal. And then he should have never lost that U.S. Open. We talked about a million times where he hit the umpire. He would have won that tournament. But this year he's won Australia over Medvedev, won the French over Nadal. And then he would now win this over Berrettini in terms of winning it. And you're waiting for the young guns. Theme, Sasha Zer for Germany, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Berrettini, Shapovalov. These are all players in their mid-20s that you're waiting to win majors. Team's the only one who's won them, and Djokovic still beats him. And he's eight, nine years older than these players, and you're waiting for them to step up. And, and he's beating them. It's like almost wrestling, like a professional wrestling. Like they, they have their chance, and they're not winning. And, and since 2017 to 21, the big three have had 18 titles out of the 19 tournaments. Theme has won the other one. When, when Nadal didn't enter, Federer didn't enter, Djokovic <laughs> defaulted. So that's... Uh, that is, uh, you know, one of those things. But Federer played well in the tournament. He made it to the quarters. And Herbert Hukot, Herbert Hukerkos, who we had on our show after he won Delray, he beat Federer in three sets in 6-0 in the third. I was watching the match, and Federer was up the second set, 5-2, and you're thinking, oh, he's going to win this. And come, But Herbert Hukerkos uh, played great and ended up uh, beating him and then losing to Berrettini in the semifinals. And Djokovic beat Shapovalov, who's from Canada, a young Canadian, uh, 22 years old, in the semis in three sets, which set up the final against Berrettini, who is like 6'4", 6'5", big, strong, bulky Italian. I thought Berrettini could have caused Djokovic 
trouble, which he did. Um, because he doesn't move well on grass per se. He's just strong, but he's a very good player. And he, uh, it was like one of those things where I, I don't think, I think Joker won, Joker won Wimbledon with his like B to B minus to B game. Like, I don't think this, when you saw Djokovic against, uh, Nadal in the French, that was like A game. This was not. It was missing shots, not playing great. Uh, but it was like in the first set, uh, it, it, was, it was one of those things where Bert, it was like five, you know, he was cruising along uh, and uh, at like five, two, Berrettini broke back to make it five, three. And then you thought, oh, wow, they're going to, he's going to hold on. But it, it, he lo- ended up losing the first set in a tiebreak, which is crazy. And then in the second set, Djokovic was up 4 0. Uh, and then Berrettini battled back a little bit, still won that. And then in the third set, he was up 4 2 and finished, uh, finished out. And it was so funny during the match. Uh, so he won her four sets. But during the match, the fans were against Djokovic. I mean, they were cheering for Berrettini, and everyone's like, oh, this must get bothered Djokovic. And he loves it because his whole life he's been playing against the doll, Federer. These guys, fans have been always against Djokovic. And so he's used to everybody being against him. But um, I thought it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was one of those things where uh, – uh, it was just a great win for him in terms of winning at Wimbledon. Uh, Kate Middleton and Prince William were there, and Kate Middleton on the court presented the trophy. Uh, but just a really good. It was. It's like one of the things where he could. It's like, oh, it's so easy. He's destined to win. But I, losing that first set, he lost the first two sets. Remember to Tsitsipas in the French Open. So it's like Djokovic had, and he lost the first set against Nadal. But the uh, the point is that he was able to, to to hold on, win those second and third and fourth sets, and really just dominated that third set, fourth set, and hold on for his twentieth title, setting up for the Olympics now and then for the U.S. Open, where he can get his twenty first major and win the Grand Slam. Uh, the first time the Grand Slam has only been won one time in the open air by Rod Laver. Uh, in 1967. So it'd uh, be pretty amazing if Djokovic can pull this off. You ever attend Wimbledon, Ira? Never been at Wimbledon. It is a must-see for me to go to. I <laughs> absolutely, I just love the tournament. I love the pomp, the circumstance, and everything about it. I noticed that Tom Cruise, they showed a picture of Cruise sitting in like terrible seat. I'm like, you're Tom Cruise, you're <laughs> the biggest actor in the world, and you're sitting in this like bad seat. And it's just, it's just so cool. Like, it was, uh, it was just, I mean, I know that Djokovic, after he won, gave his racket to this uh, little girl in the front row, and I'm thinking, this little girl in the front row, it must, their father must be somebody to get those seats. Those are like million-dollar seats. But they had full attendance for the last three, uh, the quarters, semis, and the finals. And uh, it was just, I thought it was like, it, it, again, it's just a great win for Djokovic. And being able to beat these young guns, staying better, and, and just his focus. And he talked about, we mentioned about Osaka. He talked about how he spent more, spending more time with me- being mentally prepared, being mentally tough. I mean, the fact is that, that, that he is able, in the bigger points, this is the difference. You just see this with Tsitsipas and in and, and, and this match. The bigger the point is, the, 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 in that third set, when it got tighter, when it looked like he might be in trouble, he just hits the ball harder. He plays better. He plays better at better points. And Berrettini is like slicing. Berrettini sort of, but Tsitsipas did the same thing. They sort of say, oh, this is a big point. I, I can't play so well. I've got to be nervous. Like Djokovic lives for the big points. He wants to have the big points, whereas these other guys, other people are scared of the big points. And that's the difference. I mean, that's why he just, he just raises his game. He he's, he's plays B-level game the whole way. But when he has to have a big point, he's A+. Plus, and then these, these other players can't handle it. What happened on the women's side? Um, Ash Barty, who we saw won the Miami Open, um, she's the world number one. She won her second title against Karolina Pliskova, uh, the number eight seed from Czechoslovakia. And that was a three-set match, too. But Barty is great. We saw her in interviews in Miami. I, I, it's just, she's, a one, she's someone who was like the star junior player, came to the tour, 
decided it wasn't for her, played cricket for two years, came back, and now uh, she is so far ahead of number one. And Osaka is number two. She could, like, lose for, like, six months and still be number one. Uh, because it, but uh, it was, it was she, she does, I said, she doesn't, she's like five, 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 six. She's not super uh, with a great serve. She doesn't hit the ball so hard, but she's just a great, solid player. And uh, it was a, a very good win for her. I mean, all this, all the seeds are losing in, in, in uh, Wimbledon in terms of the women's side. Serena, of course, lost in the first round. But uh, Ash Barty is now solidly the number one player in the world. Now she's going to the U.S. Open. Uh, see what she does there in, in, a, in a month or two and also the Olympics. So, Ira, I got to hand it to you. You made me some money over the weekend. And it was what you said on our show last week. You said Howard has a guy who hasn't won a fight in almost five years still held in the regard that he is. Talking about Conor McGregor. And you were right. And this fight ended up being almost even money. If the name Conor McGregor wasn't attached to that fighter, it should have been like minus 300 or plus 300 on the other side. But instead, you were able to make a lot of money if you took Poirier. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I was at, a, we'll talk about going to the baseball game. So I was at a baseball game and at Milwaukee, and then I had to go find the fight in Milwaukee. I could not find it. I was literally, there's a zillion <laughs> bars, but nobody had the fight. There was a, a place on the corner that I saw had the fight. It was like a taco restaurant, and they had to probably getting it illegally. And then I went in there, and they said, no, you can't. We are over maxed. There might have been like 30 people in the place. They said, we can't have any more people in. It wasn't even that crowded. They said, you had to order a takeout while you're waiting for your meal. You could then watch what's on TV. So I waited for the fight to start. I came in. And I ordered like the things I thought would take the longest to make. And then I was like, okay, but, but of course the match only lasted five minutes, but by then everybody had left. So I think I timed it better than uh, McGregor did. But remember 2016, he won the title against Eddie Alvarez and 2015 he won. So by 2016, uh, Connor had held both titles, was top of the world, everything great. 2017, he fights Mayweather, and uh, in 2017, he fights Mayweather, and he, uh, uh, and, and he, and he, does well. You know, it's like one of those matches where, wow, but now we see Mayweather, as I talked about last week, Mayweather doesn't look like, he was probably losing it in 2017. So I'm now all the credit I gave for, for McGregor for, for boxing well, it really doesn't matter. But in 2018, he got destroyed by Khabib. 2018, two years off. Then in 2020, Cerrone, he beat Cerrone in 40 seconds. And then 2021, Poirier knocks him out in the second round, dominates that. And then you come to this and, and you're like, Poirier, I got to give him credit. I mean, he, he could have fought Oliveri or Chandler for the title. He's the number one contender when Khabib retired. He goes, no, that's okay. I'm going to make like $20, $30 million. I'm going to fight McGregor, and he's never going to beat me. So he, fight, so he gave <laughs> up a chance to fight for the title because he knew this was easy money. I mean, I think Poirier knew this was easy money against McGregor. And I just think, and then so they started this out. Like he comes out of the ring. I mean, this was the, one of the biggest, besides Khabib, one of the, the second, I think, biggest uh, uh, UFC bouts ever. Uh, Poirier comes out out there and McGregor they said he didn't use his kicking the first like where they fought six months ago but McGregor comes out starts to hit kick but eventually he probably kicked himself and broke his leg because then he goes on the ground and he clinches and they're like oh why is he going to the ground because Poirier's so great on the ground and he tries to get him the guillotine hole which was never going to work because Poirier has the as the uh, cage for leverage and all for the like two and a half minutes Poirier is on top of him just pounding McGregor to the point where they almost could have stopped the fight then and then eventually then I saw where Poirier backed away. He looked at his trainers. His trainers sort of said, back away. So he backed away saying, okay, get up, McGregor. So that's weird. Why is he letting And McGregor didn't get up. So McGregor didn't want to get back. So Poirier said, okay, I'm going to keep pounding him again. And then with 20 seconds in the round, Poirier backed away one more time. McGregor gets up, 
steps, tries to throw one punch, and then his leg, did you see his leg buckle, broke his leg, and, uh, and then they rolled the doctor stoppage at the end of the first round. So then McGregor's like lying on the ground. He's got the trainers come in, the doctors come in, and he's yelling at Poirier like, you won cheat, you're a cheater, illegitimate. He's yelling at his wife. I'm like, you're just, I mean, Poirier should have went over to him and just beat him up again. Like, just like, <laughs> like stop calling on his wife and his kids. I mean, it was crazy. McGregor's a nut. And then he calls it illegitimate. What? You lost the first round 10-8. Like, you got destroyed now. You haven't won in five years. It's a long period of time. And, and then even uh, Dana White's like, well, there could be now a fourth fight and da-da-da. I mean, how much does McGregor have to show that he really doesn't have it anymore? He, he never developed his overall skills. He was sort of one, like, the quick strike. If it's not a quick strike, he wasn't going to win it. And he never. And it's been five years since he won a match. So, really, a real match. And uh, um, but it was like one of those one of those interesting things where I'm glad you won money. So, uh, you know, that's, you I, know what baffles I, me I, though. I, I, I you know I'm watching with a bunch of friends, and every single one of them is like thinking McGregor had a real shot to after he got DQ'd after seeing the first round. Like he probably could have still won that fight. Like, did you watch the same first round as I did? Because he had no unless he got lucky. You know what I mean? And either caught him. Like he was getting dominated, and it it, it just shows how powerful that name is and how powerful his his mantra is that people really just rally behind this guy. And I would rather just make money. <laughs> um, let's move. It's just it's going to happen all the time. I mean, I have no idea why. Again, I'm sitting at the bar, and people, I said, I think McGregor's going to fight. People are like look at me like I'm a nut. Like I said, <laughs> it's something insane. Like it's crazy. This was before the fight started, and then again, the, I heard the same thing. It's like, oh, he's calling him legitimate, and that he got hurt. Well, you got hurt because the guy beat you. Like when you kicked him, he fought back, and that's why your leg broke. Like it, again, there's a point where if it got hurt. You got knocked out the first time. The not first time. I mean, they're pointing back to like eight years ago. When McGregor beat Poirier, I mean, that, it's crazy to even go back that in time and saying this is, quote, a trilogy of a fight in terms of what it is. I mean, Poirier is by far the best. And I like what Poirier said. So Poirier, they're like, would you fight McGregor again? Now, Khabib retires, say, I don't want to be bothered. Poirier's like, yeah, I'll fight him. You want to keep paying me $30 million? I can keep beating him up? Feel free. I'll fight him. How about we schedule a fight? Once a month, I'll fight him because I know I'm going to beat him. I'll just keep fighting him and making money. You want to keep making me rich? I don't care. <laughs> it's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Let's continue in Iron busy week. Ira, so there's a few baseball stadiums. I've seen every stadium on the East Coast, but once you start going West, I haven't. There's there's two that I really want to see. One is Coors Field, and the other one is American Family Field, where, where the Milwaukee Brewers play. It looks fantastic, and you were there. Oh, and, and so I fly in, and I'm like, oh, I might be able to make the game. I landed like at 5.30. The game was like early at 6, so I sort of missed the timing of when the game started. But I thought the stadium was downtown, but it's not downtown. It's like five miles out of downtown, like in the middle of sort of nowhere. So you have to get a cab to go in there. I went to the gate, the stadium. Oh, it is tremendous. That stadium is, people think PNC Park where Pittsburgh plays is beautiful, and it's just another world. It's like you walk into Fenway, and it's modern. It, it, it has that old school feel. They have every vendor is dressed like old school. They have the, they, they only sell Milwaukee sauces and bratwurst and stuff like that. Even when they sell popcorn, they have those old school popcorn machines uh, that, that were selling. It's just a pretty stadium. I love it. I, I just think it's, it's an, and the roof is great. In the Miami Marlins Stadium, when they close the roof, you feel like you're like in, a, uh, in an elevator. When you, they, they closed the roof in the middle of the game. I didn't even notice they closed it. And so I looked at it like, boy, the roof just closed. Like that, it was so cool. I, I know that there's some criticism in the stadium. I don't know what they would be. I just think it's great. And those fans, 32,000 fans at a Saturday in the middle of July. You th- I've been to the World Series with the Dodgers 
playing the Red Sox and the fans aren't into the game like this. You thought this was like the, they were going nuts screaming at the umpires. The intensity of the game. They threw the point that Christian Yellick was thrown out for the Brewers when he rounded first base and got tagged out and he's like, it really round the first base. He got thrown out. He's yelling. They threw Votto, Joey Votto for the Reds, gets a struck call out and, he, and you could hear him like the 10th row and I screamed this, like was so upset about the call and they, and they threw him out. Then they threw the, the Brewers manager counsel out. They're throwing people out of the game left and right. And it was exciting to the point where uh, uh, Castellano for the Reds hits a home run to, 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 to take the lead. The, the Brewers tied up 3-3. And then the ninth inning, the Brewers bring in Hayter, their star super's closer, and he gives up a home run to Suarez. Uh, so the Reds end up winning the game. There are a lot of Reds fans there. But, I mean, this 32,000 fans at a July baseball game in Milwaukee, just blown away how impressive it was. And it was at the stadium. Everyone should see it. I just don't like the location because when the game's over, I'm trying to watch the fight, and I had to, like, run around. There's like buses that go to the bars of this other area, but not the downtown bars. So I got on this bus and I go and I'm like, okay, now I'll see the fight. And uh, because they had a special bus route out, and then there was no, uh, they no one's having the fight, so they take an Uber to go back downtown. But um, besides the location, I have no idea why they didn't put it downtown. It would have been so much nicer to put that beautiful stadium downtown because where it's now, you can't walk. Like I said, I hate when you walk out of the stadium, you can't walk to where you're going. So, Ira, we got just about five or minutes or so left here on Ira on Sports, but. So the Yankees actually didn't have such a bad week. They won five out of seven games, and it doesn't matter because this week is going to be remembered for what happened last night. <laughs> well, how about the night before Cole pitched 129 pitches. Uh, Boone comes out to take him out. Cole says, I'm pitching, I'm fishing the game. I mean, you never <laughs> see it. Most pitches, someone, it, it used to be people threw 100, you know, people were throwing 160 pitches. He threw 129. We have to, we're putting him in Cooperstown for that, but with, uh, two, with a shutout, the 1-0 shutout with Judge hitting the home run. But then last night, the Yanks up 7-2 in the ninth inning. And then Jose Altuve comes out 7-2, and they score runs, and then he has a walk-off home run, which is a reminiscent of the time two years ago, three years ago, in the, when the playoffs, when he hit the home run, when they, they, they had a buzzer, and he went to take his shirt off, and they banged the drum, and it was sort of like they rubbed it in in terms of the Yankees, in terms of saying they cheated, and all those other things. And we talked about before where I feel like these pitchers with this uh, spider tack have been cheating forever, so I, I, don't, I'm, I'm, I, I tend to minimize what Houston did. I'm thinking seven teams are stupid enough to let people steal their signs. But uh, it, it's devastating to the Yankees to lose, being up 7-2 against a rival like the Astros and the ninth inning and blow that lead. Um, we're going we're gonna to miss out on Ronald Acuna Jr. for the uh, rest of the season, maybe the beginning of next season, as one of the best young players in baseball, tears his ACL. Tears his ACL, terrible, terrible. Us having another great year, potential uh, MVP year for the Braves. Um, I just hope he comes back. He has, I mean, with modern medicine today, you know, the uh, ACL tear, something that ruined Mickey Mantle's career when he was young, didn't ruin it. I mean, he ended up having this great career, but it was never the same type of player. But you expect with players what they do with surgery that Acuna will be able to come back, and, and, and it's, it's devastating to the Braves. And I feel bad for Acuna because he's so exciting. It's great to see great young stars in baseball. There's a lot of hype for tonight's home run derby, which is going to start in uh, just about 10 minutes or so, as well as the All Star game tomorrow. And a lot of it, it's because of the sensation Shohei Otani. Can you imagine this? He is going to starting the starting pitcher in the game. This is like what you do at Little League. You know when they have a Little League pitcher who's like the best guy out there and he's like the best hitter and pitcher? It's like that's like when they're eight years old. It's not when you're <laughs> like in Major League Baseball where he's now going to be the starting pitcher in the All-Star game against Max Scherzer, and he's going to be in the favorite, the overwhelming favorite to win the home run hitting contest where he has 33 home runs in the year, 70 RBIs for the 280 average. And, uh, and this what he's been done, no one has had 10 starts and had so many home runs since Babe Ruth. 
Beirut. Everything's been compared to Beirut since 1918. So now every, he's going to obliterate even what Beirut did in terms of his record if he can pitch better. But uh, no, Otani's going against Soto in the first round today. And then Salvador Perez came to these great catchers going against Alfonso for the Mets who won it last year. And people like Joey Gallo from the Rangers against the Rockies' hometown, Trevor Story, and the A's Matt Olson against Trey Mancini, where they compete and then you win and then you advance to the next round. But it would be amazing if Otani wins a home run hitting item, then he pitches and pitches great, and he wins the MVP. I mean, this is uh, what a what a, it's just it's great. It's so exciting, and because he plays on the West Coast with the Angels, it's great to see this. Um, you know, eight o'clock in the night, we can watch the game and see the greatness of Otani. Ira, we uh, we kind of knew how the uh, Stanley Cup was going to shake out. We were right, and we showed once again why Andre Vasilevsky is the best goalie on the planet. Well, he's never now the last two years he's never never lost after a loss. So he's undefeated after every loss. I mean, he went against a great jolly of the Canadians, Kelly Price, but uh, winning, and it was, all, it was his fifth shutout in a winning game-winning, series-winning shutout, which is an all-time NHL record. I mean, winning one nothing in Game 5. But, I mean, they lost Game 4, but it's almost like they wanted to lose Game 4 in Canada, and they were happy to come back to Tampa so they could finally win. You know, they won the Stanley Cup last year without fans. They could finally win in front of the fans and have the big celebration. So, was, I mean, if you ever seen a team happy that they lost a uh, final game, it was probably uh, Tampa Bay because they got to go back and celebrate on home ice and have a win like that, and the town is you know, the champ, the champ City with Tampa Bay Buccaneers and, uh, and now the, the Lightning and then maybe the Rays will give them a trifecta. So let's talk a little uh, Euro Euro soccer here real quick in their Champions uh, Champions Cup. I don't like how they these they in soccer, especially in European soccer, they'll let games go to penalty kicks that have everything on the line, you know, for the season or for the tournament. I don't like that that's how it's, it, it is, but Italy beat soccer on PK. Uh, Italy beat England on PKs. Well, they, they go to penalty kicks after the overtime, but what was weird about it is that if you, was, if you take your substitutes, and I said I was, just, I was so nervous about my ticket for the game that I'm sort of watching with one eye and then like, we'll get tickets on the others, but I couldn't believe that when you go to the penalty kicks, if it's who, what players you have in the game, but you would think that England would be looking. We better have our best players out. It's almost like in baseball when you take your players out and then like an extra innings and then you can't use them, but could you imagine if like, like at the end of the game, like LeBron sitting on the bench, you can't use them. So some of the best English players weren't out there. So they had to use reserves and use like the youngest players on the team in the most pressured time for penalty kicks. So they only made two of their penalty kicks and they missed three and Italy made three and missed two. I mean, it, it was crazy that both teams were missing these kicks when usually it's a higher compl- uh, percentage of uh, success rate but uh, I think like, the English coach is getting totally criticized because he really made these substitutions at the end of the game that it took out some of his best penalty kickers and it put, replaced them with younger players uh, hoping to score a goal. I mean England scored like in the first like minute of the game and then didn't score the rest of the game Italy tied it up but uh, bad loss for England everyone's upset and all those other things but uh, um, I, I don't watch much soccer but I, I just that the strategy was like people were saying boy this is like Mike Budenholzer are coaching was he <laughs> Coaching England, you know, that was before the, the Fox game, but if they, they were criticizing English coach. Oh, we just have a, a minute or two here, Ira. Tell, talk about golf because we had a fun week with the match and we're getting ready for the British Open. Oh, there's just so much to talk about. First of all, I hardly watched the match. I have to say probably it was people who I saw the first like five, six holes. Um, Bryson and, and Aaron Rodgers beat uh, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson. Um, but I don't, uh, it was, it was, I think it's just lost in this week of great sports. So I think it's sort of lost in that. Lucas Glover wins a John Deere. Min Hui wins the Scottish Open. And all I know is that everyone I know, I've been got three phone calls today to say he's going to win the British Open. He's 100 to 1. Everyone loves this guy. He's 20 years old from Australia. They say he's like the greatest hitter they've seen 
So I don't know. Min Woo Lee, who I haven't seen play, uh, people are betting. I have a friend who's putting a lot of money on him to win the, the British Open this week. And the British Open now has 20 pullouts um, uh, because of COVID, because the Olympics. There's so many different reasons why people aren't there. The protocol, Matt Young, who won the Masters at Bob Watson, Sanjay M, Zach Donson, Matthew Wolf, Kevin Na. And so you're seeing, like, it's the field is in flux in terms of who's coming and who's not. Uh, John Rahm is ridiculous, 7-1 to one odds. I, I think this is crazy. Like, John Rahm, he's won the U.S. Open. I know, and he's playing good. He's number two in the world. But to be seven, that's Tiger level. Like, you're not 7-1 to one in a tournament like this. Bryson's 14-1. to one. Uh, He's missed, he's 51st and missed the cut twice. Rahm has never been in the top 10 in this tournament. DJ has never been in the top 50 in the tournament. He's the third choice. Then there's Rory, Xander Shoffley. But my pick is Brooks. 16 to 1. He's had a 10, 6, and a 4, three of the last four years of the tournament. Out of his last 14 majors, out of the last 11, out of his last 11 majors, he's been the top four eight times in eight and 11 majors. And I like uh, Jordan Speed as a 20 to 1. He's had a first, he won it three years ago, uh, then a ninth, and uh, at a 20th place. So I like Brooks and I like Jordan Speed in this. But uh, it'll, it'll be the last, it's, a, it's weird to say it's the last major of the year. <laughs> So. Yeah, um, Ira, we are out of time. What are you up to this week? Well, tomorrow night we got the uh, we got game four, so I'll see what I do after that game. But uh, but I'm excited to see Milwaukee game four. Spend a, a couple days here in Milwaukee, do some work, and uh, I am just pumped. I think this game is this is where the Suns look. The Suns win this game; they're up three one. They come home. Series is over. As much as that last game was series over, this is the same thing. They're not going to lose. The Suns are not losing game five of the finals. So it's a must-win for the Bucks, uh, and they're going to come out with the same fire that they have. And uh, again, it's it's, it's going to be great. The atmosphere, just the people talking about it. I just cannot wait for this. I love the NBA Finals, and I love this time of year. And this is just I'm so excited to see the game on Wednesday night. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Mr. Orange, the Phoenix Super Fan, for coming by. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.